So I remember very distinctly at the beginning of June in 2020, George Floyd's murder had just really started to touch off these massive protests and CEOs from every major company, it seems like, were putting out statements for the first time acknowledging racism and the struggles that Black Americans like myself face in the workplace every day. And that was huge just because we never heard anyone acknowledge it. But those acknowledgements also came with pledges to make things better. And that's the part that I'm not sure has changed. I feel like we've had this seismic shift between pretending that racism doesn't exist in the workplace. And now we're at the part where we know it exists, but we're still trying to figure out if we're going to do something about it. Hello and welcome to Working It from the Financial Times. I'm Isabel Berwick. And today we're talking about diversity at work. Almost everyone now says they think it's a good idea to have workforces that reflect the communities we live in. It helps, for example, to boost creativity through the wider range of ideas that come from people who have different backgrounds. And there's lots of research that shows diverse teams often perform better. And that's precisely because they can often be uncomfortable places. That can be beneficial and it makes us think and work differently. But nearly two years after the social justice movement that was set off by the murder of George Floyd forced us to acknowledge institutional racism, both in society and in our own companies, we're asking, have our workplaces actually become more diverse and socially responsible places? And if so, is it happening because it's the right thing to do? Or is it just good for business and the bottom line? I'm here with Taylor Nicole Rogers, the FT's US labour and equality correspondent, and she's in New York. Hey, Taylor. Hey, thanks for having me. Pleased to have you here, because I know that you've been doing some recent reporting on corporate America. You know, what is the experience of diversity like? Give us a snapshot of where we are at the moment, at the beginning of 2022. I think we're in this moment of accountability. It's been long enough since people made their original pledges that we're starting to look back and say, like, have we actually accomplished anything? And I think that is the moment that we're in. And it's that questioning moment, but also a moment of frustration for a lot of Black and brown people in the workplace. You know, they were very open to share their experiences in these, like, town halls and listening sessions. And they put everyone through these trainings. And now we're farther enough along that You know, a lot of us have had our performance reviews and applied for new roles. And we're thinking, has any of this actually been changed? So there's a lot of talk going on. But in the course of your reporting, Taylor, have you seen anything really innovative that is driving real change and that the rest of us can learn from in our own workplaces? Absolutely. But I have to say examples like that are few and far between. As I've been talking to a lot of diversity and inclusion professionals, one name that has come up over and over again is Microsoft because they have been very innovative in how they've worked on their pledge. Like They have had a diversity pledge since 2020 and it has gone through numerous iterations to try to figure out what is actually going to work. And one of the current programs, their Black and African American Partner Growth Initiative, has gotten a lot of praise because they are working to uplift people both within their workforce and in the communities around them to positions of leadership within the company. And they've actually seen some movement on their numbers doing that.
That's a great example. And in fact, I spoke to Neela Richardson earlier this week. She's chief economist at ADP, which is a human capital management company. And in reality, what that means is that ADP is responsible for paying about a fifth of the private sector workforce in the US. So Neela has a unique insight into the payroll system, but also into who's getting paid. And it's a data goldmine for seeing the real economic impact of diversity in the workforce. If you look at the economy, which is where I spend my time looking at, the economy has grown when it's been more inclusive. So first we saw a big wave of growth when more women entered the labor market. We also saw growth in the 60s when the U.S. became more inclusive, more open in terms of people of color, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, immigration. That all drove growth during that time period. So if you take that growth experience at the macro level and you put it at the company level, while we can't always dissect a particular cause and effect in the data, what we can say is that companies that are able to address a growing and changing customer base, which happens to be a more diverse customer base, have done well in the pandemic and are positioned to do well post-pandemic too. I know there are some companies that have always lagged on diversity activities and initiatives. Are they starting to make up for lost time because they can see it's good for business? Have you seen any of that in the data? Is there a, a wider ripple effect? Companies react in real time to the most pressing needs that they're seeing. And what we've seen is the most pressing needs for businesses of all size is labor shortages. And so that means that companies, in a very strategic, practical way, have had to recreate a pipeline of workers that would have been disrupted by the pandemic. They have to go and hunt for talent in new ways, being more expansive about who they're reaching out to, who they're recruiting, take a deeper look inside their own numbers to see what employees are they retaining what employees are quitting and going to work for a competitor or leaving the workforce altogether because they have to have been so much more introspective in order to grow headcount. Companies are actually reaching out and being more diverse in their hiring practices likely than they've ever had to be before. And that's only been amplified by what else happened during the pandemic, which is a lot of social and global movements, unrest, demands for more equity in pay and civil society that has all trickled back to the company. And most importantly for the company to the customer and what the customer demands. And increasingly a customer wants a company that reflects its own preferences and priorities. And I think that's what's moving the needle in terms of business looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion as a way to, first of all, really stop the hemorrhaging of lost headcount and add to their workforce, but also position for the customer demands of tomorrow. So in some ways, that's quite a cynical way to look at it. It's about the customer first in this instance, although customers are increasingly looking for good practice from businesses. But something that's interested me is how the pandemic has affected employee experiences, Have any groups been disproportionately affected during the pandemic? I think what we know now is that there's no one-size-fits-all HR policy that's going to work for every worker. And let's just take the case for a second of women. Women have been particularly affected by the pandemic. Not only uh, were they over-indexed in sectors that were hard hit, like leisure and hospitality or retail, they also took on more family responsibilities. And so 
female labor force participation rate has really been one of the casualties of the workforce changes that we've seen. Now we're looking at the other side in terms of returning to work and what that means for women. And I think what's really critical here, again, is to circle back to the data on employee sentiment and how employees have adjusted to working from home, working remotely, working in hybrid relationships, and how we can develop people's careers professionally and their skill sets, even in a hybrid establishment, and how those protocols actually affect different people differently. So again, back to women, if women women are taking on a larger share of family responsibilities, are they going to tend to stay at home? And as an HR facility or as a corporate facility, how do we ensure that people who make that decision to work from home aren't penalized by that decision in terms of career development? That's something that companies are still working out in real time. So Taylor, hiring is obviously a huge topic right now, and lots of companies are searching for new talent. Are there any companies that are approaching this with sort of diversity in mind? I had a feature about LinkedIn that was taking people on from the hospitality industry into customer service roles. Are there any other examples of innovative employers that are you know, perhaps overlooking qualifications in favour of experience? I think that's actually become quite a bit widespread in this market. I've been talking to a lot of employers who have done things like pay for a candidate to get the education they need to do this role instead of requiring that someone has that certification coming through the door and adding that as a benefit. That's really imaginative. I'm really pleased to hear that. But I know that there are loads of hurdles for biracial people and people of colour once they're in employment. And it'd be interesting to talk a bit about the barriers to advancement and also retention, because often people are hired, but then they don't stay. What do you see as the main issues? I think it comes 100% down to culture. If you have a good culture, then people don't have to code switch. And code switching is just when you take who you are and you suppress parts of that when you go into the workplace, especially if you aren't the typical person in the workplace. So you might change the way you dress, the way you style your hair, your accent when you speak. That way you blend in more with other people in the office. So for me, that means being a Black woman from Tennessee, I tend to turn down my Southern twang and speak in a way that I think is more proper when I'm in the workplace. And I don't always know that I'm doing it, but I do notice at the end of the day when I get home and kind of take off my work clothes that I speak a little bit more comfortably. So I think from what I've heard from people of color, this has always been a big reason to switch jobs. The culture thing has always been a big reason that people switch jobs. But because of the environment we're in now, people are even more willing to switch jobs because recruiters are coming to them saying, we want you because you have a different experience. We're working really hard to fix our culture. And they're using that as a recruiting tool, which works really well on someone who feels like they are being actively excluded in their workplace. Right. So there are some employers who are working hard to retain a diverse workforce. Have you seen any examples of really good practice in that? Because one of the things that has surprised me, I think, when I've been reading around this subject is that having diversity policies in itself can actually make matters worse because it lulls the organization into thinking they've done everything they need to do because it's all written down on a document. 
Absolutely. And a lot of the things that are in these diversity plans don't actually change the day-to-day experience of workers of color. Because if you think about the things we do first, it tends to be, we're going to have a training, we're going to have a listening session, we're going to celebrate Black History Month, and we're going to celebrate Latino Heritage Month. And those things are not bad in and of itself, but they don't actually change the things that people care about, which tends to be pay transparency and pay equity and culture. Right. So looking at how people are paid and bringing in the data, something that Neela was talking about, is perhaps the most important thing that companies can do. Look at the pay gap. Look at the pay gap and think critically about why it's there. So I've spoken with companies who have said, oh, well, we have a really large black-white pay gap, but that's because we've only been intentionally hiring black people for two years. So they're all at the entry level. And that's why the pay gap is so wide. Well, I don't think that's acceptable. If the pay gap is so wide because you only have Black people at the entry level, maybe you need to hire Black people at the senior level. And you could also say, well, the pay gap is so wide because we just lost our CDO, our chief diversity officer, who is the highest paid Black person at the company. And that really opened up the gap. Once again, I would say that's not good enough. And I think we're in that spot now where employers have been doing these pay equity reports more commonly for a year or two. And so now we really have to investigate why they're reporting the things that they're reporting. That's interesting. And I'm interested to hear you talk about training, which, of course, is something that's incredibly common in companies. But I think Mm -hmm. too often there's this concept of cultural taxation, which was quite new to me but actually has really opened my eyes to the experiences of black colleagues because often in training, black and non-white colleagues are asked to recount the experiences they've had of racism or other discrimination in an effort to change colleagues' minds. And Mm -hmm. I just wonder, surely that seems outdated. Have you seen any evidence that that's not a practice anymore? A bit like, you know, anti-bias training has become something that is now, I would say, seen as unfashionable and it doesn't work. I think... Unfortunately, those kinds of trainings are still pretty common because they are low cost, quick to throw together and something that companies can very easily say, like, look, we've done something. But you're right. I think a lot of diversity professionals are starting to caution against them for two reasons. One being that having to go in front of everyone that you work with and share one of the most vulnerable and traumatic stories of your life really takes a toll on people of color. And two, a lot of research has shown that those types of trainings don't actually produce any long-standing change in the workplace. So essentially, I guess we're saying, as so often in workplace culture, fix the structure, don't ask people to fix it for you. Right. And we've talked a lot about, over the past two years, the role that Black employees specifically should have in these Black Lives Matter pledges. You know, obviously you want the input of people of color in these plans. Obviously not enough companies have people of color at their senior levels, but you don't want to add diversity and inclusion to someone's job description that didn't ask for it. So you have to find that right balance. Yeah, these things are incredibly time-consuming as well as taking a mental toll. And I'm hoping that a lot of organisations are starting to recognise the value in paying people 
for this work, but I rather fear that it's all too often unrecognized. I think that's exactly the case. You know, we talk a lot about office housework when it comes to women. Like, who's the person that coordinates getting the birthday cake and the birthday card for a colleague? And is that person doing it every single time? Are they being compensated for that work? And how does that impact their career trajectory? And I think we have to think similarly about diversity and inclusion work. If you don't have a large enough DEI staff in your organization, are you just passing that work on to your employees of color? And if so, how do they feel about that? Because that could be contributing to a feeling of otherness, that they have these extra responsibilities, that people are judging them based on how smoothly they pulled off their diversity and inclusion programming. And is their story dramatic enough, impactful enough to carry this programming? Thanks, Taylor. I I think what I'm taking away from this episode is that, one, companies should really look to their structure and their pay gap and the seniority of the staff they're employing, you know, build a pipeline of people of colour, not just recruit at the bottom end, as we were discussing. And number two, the housekeeping problem, who's doing the work? But I'm sure there's a lot of good intentions out there that just haven't been actioned yet. You know, we're at this pivotal moment. It's nearly two years since Black Lives Matter protests. And it would be great to see in 2022 more companies starting to really take action on this. Thanks to Neela Richardson and Taylor Nicole Rogers for this episode. If you want to read more about diversity at work, I'll put links to some of Taylor's work and other FT articles in the show notes. And please do get in touch with us. We want to hear from you and we're at workingit at ft.com or with me at Isabel Barrick on Twitter. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times. Thanks to the producer, Anna Sinfield, executive producer, Joe Wheeler, and we have editorial direction from the FT's Renee Kaplan and production support from Persis Love. Thanks for listening. Listener.